HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Comté-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Aaron Foster, and we're here to talk about all things cheese, specialty, deliciousness, and uh, and today also uh, some, some real-world stuff. Um, I have with me Tyler Hawes. Tyler, most recently the president of uh, Roland Foods, but... Uh, with a, a deep background in specialty food and uh, business entrepreneurship over the last uh, almost two decades, I would say, um, everywhere from distribution to production to retail. And uh, I've asked him to join me today so that we can continue in our, our uh, deep dive looks at uh, what the industry is, uh, is doing in response to COVID uh, and and these days, in response to some of the movements for for racial justice and and what the the near future looks like, the middle future and the far future. So I'm planning to ask Tyler a number of questions that he can't possibly know the answer to, and we'll circle back in a little while and see where it's at. So Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Really nice to to be with you, and excited for the conversation. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're you you aren't currently a a cheese professional but you you've obviously got deep experience in cheese um 
you know, I guess my first question is um, coming from sort of a distribution uh, background most recently um, and sort of witnessing uh, large and small businesses handling uh, the COVID, you know, the emergence of COVID uh, in different ways. Like, can you like paint us a picture of what the landscape sort of looks like in general right now? Like what are businesses sort of doing? What have they done? Where do they stand now? Uh, absolutely. I think, um, so when, when we kind of look at the, at the food distribution, you know, landscape, you know, you used to have, you know, a very clear kind of bifurcated system, you know, one that went into the retail trade and then one that went into the food service trade. And, and outside of, you know, some independents and, and regional um, distributors, you know, those two things didn't really meet. Um, they're both rigid in their own ways and, and you tended to kind of play on one side or the other. Um, you know, now that that kind of food service and retail is much more kind of a blur, you know, you have restaurants, restaurants are retailing food service distributors, you know, have tried to kind of capitalize by delivering, you know, to end customers at home. Um, so I think those those lines are, are not as clear. Um, you have, in particular, on the food service side, you know, much of a, an identity crisis, because what was their core competency, they've now tried to go where the demand is, which is, is food, food at home versus food away from home. Right. And that seemed like a move sort of born out of desperation when the well of sales dried up in the food service sector, right? Yeah, that's right. I think it was, you know, we, we have this stockpile of inventory that was meant for the, the restaurant trade. And we see obviously this, you know, massive demand happening at retail. You know, we need to both sell into, you know, retail from a wholesale perspective, but also how can we, you know, uh, capture a bit more of that margin and go direct. But, um, you know, from, from the beginning of that kind of strategic shift, I, I've been very skeptical, uh, in particular around the economics. I think, you know, at, at best, it helps move some inventory. Uh, but at worst, I think it could actually, you know, further perpetuate, you know, a, a problem just because I think it's it's so expensive to deliver uh, a restaurant, let alone, you know, a hundred or $200 order to the suburbs. Right. Um, it's interesting, I guess. Uh, you know, when you're when we're talking about cheese, we're generally talking about perishables, and you had all of this sort of well, at the time it wasn't excess inventory, but it sort of overnight became excess inventory in the pipeline, um, and presumably not all of that was able to um, be be sort of redirected to to retail in time within the shelf life, right? Yeah, I, I think for a lot of folks that I, I I spoke with, you know, they they ended up donating a, a substantial amount of product or heavily discounted it if they could. Um, but you know, the more uh, you know, esoteric, you know, soft ripened cheeses, um, you know, cheese that really you know needs somebody either behind you know an independent counter or uh, at a restaurant to really explain kind of, um, you know, how great it is and why it's so interesting. Um, but those more kind of fragile, you know, cheeses are uh, very difficult to distribute unless you're shipping them directly to somebody's home. And even in that case, um, you know, you can end up spending a lot of, of resources on customer service to, you know, explain why, you know, the rind is, is this way or the flavor uh, is a little bit funky. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the cheeses that you and I, you know, would love to have at our table, 
uh, were the ones that were most uh, difficult in terms of moving right off the bat. Does that make sense? It does. It totally makes sense. Um, and I, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, an article I read in the New York Times today, which, um, or it was maybe just a short piece that talked about the volatility in the cheese market specifically. And I think they're they're certainly looking at more industrial producers, but um, how they're seeing demand drop off, or they saw demand drop off immediately as restaurants and schools and uh, you know, large businesses closed. And then now that some of them are opening, um, some of that business is coming back, but then retailers, once they were able to sort of bring in new suppliers into their supply chains, they're actually selling a, a whole mess of cheese. Um, and so the, the producers are finding themselves kind of yo-yoed around. Yeah, it, it's so hard to plan, especially if you're a cheesemaker um, right now. I mean, it's hard to plan if you're a buyer. It's hard to plan if you're if you're making a product, especially one that, you know, is not going to be ready for 30, 60, six months, a year from now. Um, so you, you are kind of, you know, in this, you know, area where you have to you have to kind of anticipate that you're going to have to adapt. And so I think the the more flexible you can you can kind of make your assortment um, and maybe not take as much risk around products for any specific you know channel. I I, I would anticipate that we're going to continue to see these types of kind of you know fluctuations and trading you know between markets as the demand just you know is is so uncertain right now. Right, that that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, it's a, you know anticipate needing to adapt sounds uh, like a, a sort of wordier way of saying expect the unexpected. Yeah, I think, you know, if anybody, so right now you've got this kind of, you know, we're, we're in this recovery mode, we're starting to reopen and you think of that in kind of a, you know, a linear, a step change fashion where, you know, uh, today is going to be better than yesterday. Next week is going to be better this, than this week. Um, and I, I don't think that's the, the, the path that businesses should prepare for cheesemakers. I think, you know, it's going to be two steps forward, one step back one step to the left, two steps to the right. So it's it's really about how you keep all available options open to you because I think as soon as we start to get some consistency um, in demand, that's when things could change again as well. I see. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and the idea that there would be consistency in demand anytime soon seems um, seems optimistic. Yeah, I think it, I think it is. You know, the you can't tie your business to reopening. You have to tie your business to the demand that follows, right? So it's it's great when you know restaurants and and small businesses can start to reopen, but you know, really the the sustainability of those businesses and and ultimately their success does not um, you know come without substantial demand at levels that you know have to really exceed seventy five percent of what you know they were doing pre COVID. I think to even you know, maintain a healthy business in some cases more. Right. right. Depending on how maybe leverage isn't the right word, but, um, how, uh, profitable the business was beforehand, um, and what the exigencies are in, in the individual case. But certainly, I mean, if my business was 75% of what it was, it would be extremely challenging to run. So, well, and that's why I think, you know, every, every business now needs to, uh, 
know their numbers better than they ever have before and not only know what's happening you know uh, today and yesterday but to have lots of different scenarios that you're planning uh, around and saying okay here's what this could look like you know scenario a b and c how do i plan my business you know in, in effectively for all three um you know both from kind of a base case to you know kind of a worst case scenario and you know, managing your cash is is the most critical thing you can do right now. And I think what my concern is, is that, you know, there's some cash on the balance sheet of these businesses, whether it's a restaurant, you know, or a, a small retailer that, uh, you know, is, is subsidizing their operating expenses to a, a pretty hefty degree. And the only way to solve for that is when demand returns at the levels that it was pre-COVID. And I think that's a that's a recipe to have lots of zombie businesses over the next few months that won't make it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're seeing that just today with um, the closing, the announcement of the closing of Bedford cheese shop. Um, and certainly a handful of other shops have announced that they're closing. I haven't seen as many cheesemakers announce that they're closing. And I wonder why that is because I, you know, I would think that some of these cheesemakers got stuck with, a huge book of payables that they aren't going to collect on either ever or anytime soon. Uh, and certainly the same with distributors. And I, I wonder, is it simply that their models allow them to, um, you know, to pivot to retail uh, and replace some of that business or that they have a higher profit, uh, enough cash on the books to weather the storm or, um, you know, why, I guess, why aren't we seeing more businesses failing or, or is it that the, um, you know, the government has pumped enough money into the system to prop everyone up for the time being? Yeah, I don't, I don't have clarity. Um, I thought there'd be more uh, restaurants that would have called it already uh, as well. Um, but you know, you're seeing, at least you're not seeing that kind of public announcement. So you know, I know that a lot of those conversations are happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, my fear is that there's just not a, enough awareness of the solvency of the business in these moments, you know, so that, you know, this can very quickly, once we reach the end of the summer, kind of get away from a lot of these cheesemakers and small businesses, because, you know, maybe they felt comfortable, um, not comfortable necessarily with the cash on the balance sheet, but said, I have a little bit of time, but it, it's incredible how quickly, um, you know, when there isn't demand happening and you've got, you know, a storage locker full of, of, of cheese and, and other products, um, you know, that's obviously, you know, cash that's just sitting there, uh, not being, um, you know, converted on the, ba or shifting on the balance sheet. Um, so it's a good question. I, 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 I don't know, but I just encourage, you know, all cheesemakers and small businesses to, to get the help and even invest in the help to really understand, you know, the, the health of the business, to, you know, and what it's going to take to kind of get back to, um, you know, supporting uh, themselves and obviously the employees, um, you know, moving forward. Yeah, so it seems like a good good time to invest in some accounting. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> um, I guess I wonder, you know, you mentioned that you were surprised not to see as many restaurants call it quits overtly. I mean, so was I. I think partially... Um, and a lot of these restaurants are, are you know, ha buying lots of cheese that they, or had bought lots of cheese that they uh, then didn't or couldn't pay for. Um, and, I, you know, there is it's a funny situation now because it just I have to imagine 
most collectors at this point are like, it's, it's blood from a stone. Uh, there's no business, so how are you going to collect? Um, but then the question, it just seems to me that like everyone is waiting for their money, but once business starts to open up, that debt's still there. And how does it get settled out? Well, I think that's the biggest so, question, you know, across all of these, you know, small businesses in particular is, is, you know, we may have borrowed kind of cheap, but ultimately it's still a liability. And, and as you know, you know, most of these businesses are not, um, you know, generating, you know, months and months of cash just to have on hand, you know, they're, they're providing for, you know, a family and employees and, and in some cases have the scale to, um, you know, uh, do even more than that, but yeah, the, the it's a notoriously is, low margin industry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. These are tough businesses to begin with. And I think once you, you layer on, you know, debt, um, it gets even, even scarier. And some of the conversations I've been having are whether or not you take, you know, the savings that you've built over the small business over several years or decades and start to put it back into the business, uh, if not already. And, uh, you know, I just encourage caution around kind of, you know, you don't necessarily know what the right business is because we don't know what the demand is going to look like. Um, it's a very precarious situation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you're sort of gently cautioning against doubling down unless you have a really conservative and flexible plan to get back to solvency. Yeah, I think I think the worst thing you can do is you know, go back, still have the same business and business model that you did pre-COVID and just expect that the demand will come back on top of that. I think unless you're right. making substantial changes now uh, to what, you know, to the to the best of your ability, um, that's going to give you, I think, the best shot of being successful. But just waiting for that demand to come back on the same business, I think, is, is uh, where I would definitely put some caution. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I would say that my concern right now as a as a cheese, you know, small cheese retailer um is that like business is pretty solid. Um we're comping over last year um about what we were you know at this point what we were budgeting to. Um and uh, admittedly our business like our margin makeup is very different than what it was and and our staffing is different and and the services we're providing are pretty different but um you know our finances are right now are are like holding steady um but i i i worry that the and i think there's been a lot of debate around this and i'd be interested to hear your take on it um about the the six hundred dollars a week in unemployment stimulus, um, particularly for our industry that's been hit so hard, the you know food and beverage hospitality, um, that the that money is sort of artificially keeping money being spent in in the industry and also uh, um, sort of keeping everybody artificially tied to their businesses to a certain extent with the, the potential of kind of just jumping back into the workforce at the end of it. And if COVID sort of improvements don't line up directly with uh, the end of those stimulus payments, that things could get really hairy. Yeah, I think there's going to need to be, you know, additional stimulus. At the end of the day, there needs to be a bridge, you know, to 
uh, folks getting back to work, whether it's in the business that they left or, or somewhere else. Um, so I, I think, you know, we need to continue to, you know, support those workers. I think through over the next couple of months, I think we'll have a clearer picture, you know, before there's there's some larger solve to, to COVID through a vaccine, you know, of what this, you know, new normal looks like. Um, and then I think, you know, I think the federal government's going to then have to adapt and ultimately, you know, wean off of the, the premium that it's paying, but, you know, still keep um, making sure that, that people can put food on the table and, and, you know, continue to survive. But I agree yeah. with you that, you know, there isn't this just moment where everybody goes back to work and you can just stop paying, you know, additional unemployment. Right. It does feel, you know, speaking to other business, everyone's kind of hush hush about this because like a lot of our staff that, you know, or people, not our staff, but staff that has been laid off or otherwise let go and is collecting unemployment, um, they're often making more than they were um, working for the businesses that they were working on, working at before. Um, and, you know, I personally don't have a problem with that per se, but it does create a perverse incentive or disincentive where it's actually an eerily difficult environment to hire in. Um, And I wonder, you know, I wonder what it looks like to sort of change that dynamic where it does become, where you can incentivize people to go back to the jobs, to, to go back to jobs and go back to the jobs that they were working at before while also keeping money in the economy and not sort of fucking people over and, and taking money that they depend on to live. Yeah. I, I you know, just you saying that it, it, I hadn't thought about the ramifications of, of making it harder to, to obviously get, get help in a, in a store like yours. Um, but it makes a lot of sense there. We have, would have hired. Yeah. We would have hired um, probably for more positions earlier on if we could find people. Um, but there's people that people have either stayed where they are and are working or they left because they were afraid of getting sick or they got laid off and then found that they could afford to live and stay home, which was sort of the point, you know, get out of, get out of the labor force. If, if you can't work remotely, um, at least stay home and don't spread the virus around, but yeah. And I think, you know, as kind of inefficient as, you know, unemployment was distributed once it obviously, you know, starts to, um, you know, be at a normal cadence, like a pay period, um, you know, every week or every couple of weeks, um, you know, that motivation, you know, definitely wanes, especially in this environment, right? And, you know, you and your team are, are taking a different level of risk than, you know, folks who are, are staying home. So I'm sure that plays into it as well. But I do think that, you know, we're going to have to start seeing some policy around, uh, you know, how we, whether you create an incentive, maybe, you know, in order, if you go and take another job, you'll get, you know, a certain X number of weeks additional of, of unemployment to kind of prevent this from, you know, becoming, I think, a, a very, very challenging cycle. Um, but at the same time, yeah. we can't just, we can't just stop paying that, right? I think you could go to a more normalized unemployment level. Um, but obviously, there's a reason that it was, you know, the $600 a week to begin with. Right. I mean, it would be disastrous if we simply stopped paying it and um, 
definitely having a situation where it's slightly harder for businesses like mine, businesses that stayed open to hire and retain people is preferable to having a whole bunch of people who can't afford to pay for medical care, feed their families, uh, pay their rent, um, and then still not be able to, if all of those people were like, okay, my $600 is gone, time to go back to work, there aren't nearly enough jobs for all of those people to return to work. Right. No, I think that's um, exactly right. So it's 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 interesting. Um, I think what we'll do is take a short break uh, and hear from one of our sponsors and then come back and talk a little bit about what seems to be the word of the day, which is the pivot. Um, so this is Cutting the Curd. I've got Tyler Hawes with me. Stay tuned and we'll be back momentarily. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same, Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Hello, and welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Aaron Foster, your host, and joining me is my dear friend, mentor, and just all-around brilliant business person and entrepreneur, Tyler Hawes. Um, before the break, we were discussing sort of um, at very top level, you probably didn't hear the word cheese as much as maybe you want to hear if you tune into the show. But um, I think we were, you know, it's important to kind of get the picture of what the landscape looks like for distributors, for all these bits and, and pieces of the supply chain that help get cheese from the cow to your mouth. Um and, and, you know, if you've ever listened to any of my shows, you've probably know that, that I, I find that stuff super interesting, and that's what I tend to focus on. Um, what I'd like to kind of spend the second half on is what I, what I feel like is just the word of the hour for word of the day, word of the month, word of COVID for, um, you know, f- for our business and our industry, which is the pivot Everyone is pivoting. Where are they pivoting from? Where are they pivoting to? Uh, what are the dangers of pivoting in general? Um, so I guess I'll, I'll contextualize it before I, I, I let you opine. Um, you know, something that has always concerned me, my biggest fear as a, as a specialty retailer 
is that people eventually become so accustomed to Amazon, Walmart, Kroger, the convenience, the price, uh, and the selection of shopping from those retailers uh, outweighs the curation, the quality, the special products that they don't know how to handle, um, and the fact that you have to come to me to get it, uh, virtues of, of small business. And I feel uh, my concern is that this, uh, you know, this COVID situation where um, delivery and contactless and curbside uh, has really taken out one of the the few remaining table legs that we had as a small business uh, entrepreneur retailer. And, you know, speaking for myself, we listened to Brie, of Cheese Shop of Salem a couple weeks back, and she told us how they they pivoted really effectively, at least according to them, and um, moved a lot of their business online and curbside um, and e-commerce and have, have felt like it saved their business um, and certainly kept them safe. Um, we have made certain changes to our business, but are have not really manifestly changed anything about the way that we do business. Um, and I wonder, is this, I, I feel like I've, you know, you, you've got the NBA, not me and I, but I feel like, I feel like one of the tropes is like change or die and, um, you know, be flexible, move fast and break things, all of these sort of trite cliches, but, uh, I am a little bit afraid. And so how are you seeing people pivot? I guess is my question. I'll stop talking. You're here to, to talk to me. Um, and and yeah, what what do you think? You've talked about being ready, sort of expect the unexpected and be ready to change. Um, but what does that look like more practically? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I struggle a little bit with just the word pivot because I, I think to your point, it just kind of gets thrown around and it's it's much harder than than it sounds, right? Because you're you're creating another business within your business or you're completely changing the way that you, right. you know, go to market and and. I think everybody needs to know that that's a clunky process um, and that you're going to learn a lot right from the beginning that is probably going to prompt you to continue to, to change along the way. So I think it's about thinking about it as, a, as, as definitely a journey, you know, getting lots of feedback along the way and obviously trying to reduce your risk and hopefully you pick, you know, the right spot or two uh, and you start to, to obviously get, um, you know, the results that you're, you're looking for. But I think, you know, I think if if you are, um, you know, if you're a business today that is not kind of digitally enabled in some way, um, I think you're you're going to struggle. Um, I don't think, you know, Aaron, you have the ability to order online, but you do have a very loyal and intimate following. I think on social media, was that a fair characterization? I I think so. Um, for yeah. Uh, by and large, we do, and we try to engage with our social media um, sort of fan base or audience, uh, and that's that's kind of that's as far as we've pushed it. But I I I keep having this fear that keeps me up at night that if we don't get online and and make it as easy or almost as easy to buy from us as it is to buy from Amazon or Instacart or Fresh Direct or Peapod, that um, those customers that left me because they were too afraid to come to the store. Um, 
and went to places that maybe they weren't as psyched on but got used to ordering that way and felt safer doing it might not come back. Yeah, I, I think I think you do need to create that. I think there, unfortunately, you know, is going to be a customer on the other end that, you know, would just prefer to transact in that way um, and that you can tell an effective story around the products that you're selling. And I think give a great value proposition, you know, to those customers just in a little bit of a different way. And, you know, I've seen, you know, cheesemakers, um, you know, even some distributors, you know, being able to set up, you know, online. I mean, it's the, the barriers to set up a, a site now, and, and you've benefited from this, you know, just in terms of, of different technologies that you used, you know, whether it's it's Shopify or some of these other sites, it, it, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's easy, but it is much more simple than it once was um, to create that kind of direct, you know, link from a commerce perspective. Um, but I, I, I do, unfortunately, you had Walmart, you had Amazon, you had all these big companies, Target, that were able to stay open through this. They've massively benefited from it. Um, and now, you know, I don't think we can kind of just say, okay, well, you know, people are just going to want that experience to come into the store. Um, there's going to be a contingent of folks who just, who can't do that. They have underlying conditions. Uh, they're going to purchase in a different way. So I think, you know, you're, one would alienate, I think, you know, good paying, healthy customers um, if we're not providing, I think, you know, what some would be, would deem as kind of the, the safe and easy option of whether it's curbside pickup, some delivery mechanism. Um, but yeah, and, and again, that doesn't need to become your only business, but it definitely can become a part of the in-store experience. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I've struggled to... I feel a bit like I've struggled to leave behind that and to 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 turn the ship and it's funny because Foster Sundry is not it's not like we're a huge business. We have a staff of roughly 20 um which is up from 11 at, at the height of the pandemic when um you know a lot of people left and moved away and we did lay off two people um and now we've rehired and and kind of we are we're we're back to our our full fighting trim and and we still don't have parts of our business turned back on um but it still even at, at this size did feel a bit like steering a ship that had a lot of momentum behind it um and had trouble kind of turning it into uncharted waters of uh you know of e-commerce and and new new business channels well and rightfully so you know i think early on you were just trying to to make sure food was coming in and, and going out. Um, right. But even for, I mean, think about from, for cheesemakers, um, and maybe this has changed and, and I haven't been as, as close to the, uh, the cheesemaking community as I, as I was a few years ago. But, you know, I think people went into cheesemaking to, you know, make something they felt really, really good about, you know, that it was, you know, an, an art and it was exciting and it was full of creativity. And, a little bit less around going into cheese making as a business to serve a particular market or customer, right? And so I think that's the challenge for cheesemakers now. A passion is, project is a little bit. Yeah, or sure. But, and a lot of these passion projects turned into incredible businesses because the market was growing. You had restaurants. Yeah, I don't mean to retail. belittle them. No, but no, people no. went into it not because the margins in making cheese is so great and the and the work life balance is ideal. They went into it because 
they fell in love with it and felt like they could make a go at it. And and now that the the market has limiting factors, right? So there, you know, there's uh, obviously you know certain cheeses are doing well at retail. Uh, there's less of a market at food service. I think you know cheesemakers have to actually now say, okay, what can I create that you know uses all of my knowledge and capability that will that will service the most demand that exists today because it is is more limiting than it once was, um, which I think is a little bit of a different approach. Um, you know, than, than many cheesemakers have taken from the beginning, which, which can be exciting. Uh, some may view it as kind of limiting and selling out in different ways if, it, if it's creating something that maybe is, um, you know, less interesting or dynamic. But I think those are the types of, of conversations that a lot of folks are having right now. Right. That makes sense. Um, and I, I guess I, you know, we're, we're both very close to Mateo up at Jasper Hill, and I, I got an email from from their their email blast uh kind of touting their new exact weight gas flush cheeses which i i suspect were probably in in progress in some form for a while but it does it seems like a perfect example of the pivot to me um where you know you you recognize that this is a potential market but you've always been able to kind of support yourself with your traditional channels and um you know made other decisions that meant you didn't need to to kind of do that but um if you're sitting on a bunch of i mean we spoke to him and he told us himself that a bunch of large food service distributors turned away orders on the dock and that leaves you with few options um and it does seem like while it was a surprise to get it it seems like it makes perfect sense in this environment yeah no i was i was excited to to see that that option and i think it's about kind of you know making some deliberate choices about, you know, on one hand, you know, what are your non-negotiables? You know, what, what, what for you, you know, is, is too far um, astray from, you know, uh, the company's core values. And then, you know, what other sacrifices can you make, you know, to get your product out there to where it ultimately is being consumed right now. And I think, you know, Mateo, Andy, and the team, you know, realize that, you know, that's going to be the best possible outcome uh, or input for their product, you know, that is, you know, going to be more successful where the market is today, um, and probably make, you know, probably be a healthier and, and better cheese in terms of quality um, than if you're letting somebody that maybe has less experience in doing that. Right, or letting it sit on the shelf until it is past peak in the in the vaults um, before you can find a market for it. Totally agree. Um. Why don't we pivot for a moment, since we've only got a few minutes left, um, and and I just wanted I I don't want to let the conversation go by without at least touching on this, um, which is just the movements and protests and calls for um, racial justice and equality that are happening all over. Um, you know, we're we're both white guys, um, and our industry does. It is demographically very, very white. Um, I wonder whether both COVID and um, the sort of more open conversations we're having around race right now, um, whether that also presents an opportunity for us to make changes instead of, I, I don't think pivot is the right word here, but, you know, to, to make changes in um, 
policies and approaches, uh, sourcing patterns, employment patterns um, to help us build more fair and robust businesses moving forward? Yeah, no doubt our industry and and obviously many others, if not, you know, all have a diversity problem. Um, And that just means they have a creativity problem, right? So um, I think that, you know, the the point you're you're kind of leading towards is, you know, if we can if we can be a more inclusive industry, are we going to come up with better ideas, be more dynamic, uh, especially in an environment that you know is you know changing so quickly, um, you know? But at the same time, I think you know just adding diversity because it feels good isn't necessarily going to make it better in the long run. I think we have to maintain open lines of communication you know, all be willing to be vulnerable, especially you and me. Um, and leaders have a huge role to play with that. But, you know, it, it's not enough to just say you're going to add diversity to your organization. I think you have to put in the work to make sure that that diversity, you know, is, is harnessed and managed in the best possible way. Uh, because in, in a lot of environments, that's going to be new um, and isn't going to be completely natural for the, the organization. And, and I don't think you'll be able to maximize the benefit unless, you know, this becomes not just the 10 things we do today, but the one thing or two things we do every day, you know, for the rest of time. Yeah, I think that's, that's really insightful. I guess I, 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 I wonder what I, and what, you know, I think that's much more eloquent than, than I could have put it. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I've been wondering and that we're sort of working on internally uh, at Sundry is like, if we're going to blow everything up right now, like we can pick and choose, we, we can pick and choose new priorities um, that we haven't focused on as much in the past. Um, and, and uh, you know, diversity has come up among our management team um, as, as uh, an area to focus on and sort of harness, I think, I think you've, you put it really well to sort of harness for, social and business good. Yeah. And and if it's not going to be something that we commit to, you know, and that gets institutionalized, we're just going to continue to be in this cycle of triage, which for some, you know, may look or feel okay or good in that moment, but isn't going to, I think, make the underlying impact that, you know, we need to. Right. Um, well, I guess before I let you go, um, I'd like to know kind of how are you, I, I, I want to know a little bit about how you're feeling. Are you feeling cynical, pessimistic, optimistic, hopeful? I'm sure it's some mix, um, you know, for the cheese industry in general um, over the next couple of years. And then I guess I'd want you to give us a picture of sort of whether you think in say a year, um, you know, we'll, restaurants will be back and we'll, ha- and, and we'll have the same amount of cheesemakers and retailers. We'll have fewer, we'll have more. Um, basically I want you to look into your crystal ball and paint us a picture. Um, you can tell me whether it's a year in advance, three years, five years. Um, and then sort of tell us whether that's your, your, your best guess or whether you are optimistic or pessimistic or what. And it's okay to be pessimistic because I definitely feel that way sometimes. 
you know, it's even worse. I feel like it's both. So it's just a, a total cognitive dissonance, you know, happening, um, you know, on a daily basis. So here's what what I believe. Uh, I, I believe that, you know, this is has created, um, you know, a situation where everything is going to be about the home for the foreseeable future. Um, and I say that in a weighted fashion, right? So obviously restaurants will open. But I think the focus is still going to be at the home, which means that retailers will continue to thrive. Um, Cheesemakers that sell into the retail trade will continue to to thrive in in that part of the business. Um, with that said, I think the consumer will become, as they I think already have, a bit more price conscious. That's looking for value, but still willing to pay a premium for quality, you know, artisan products especially those that that support kind of a local ecosystem and are sustainable. Um, I, I'm a believer that that restaurants, you know, once we uh, let's call it two to three years from now will look very different. I think they'll have, you know, total kind of omni-channel capabilities. I think they will be retailing product and that's here to stay. Um, distributors at the same time, I, I think will be much more omni-channel, you know, both servicing food service and, and retail. Um, it'll be a much more coordinated offering. Um, but I think in, in five years, the restaurant of the future will be thriving. Um, we are, are social animals and, and need that interaction. But I do think for the foreseeable future, you know, things will be about, you know, the, the home table Hopefully that becomes the the communal home table so, to a certain degree. Um, but you know, for me, this is not a matter of a recovery to um, you know a previous normal. I think this is an opportunity to you know uh, do some really creative and innovative things if we give ourselves the the time and space to to really think critically about you know what our business is and what the industry is going to look like. Um, but uh, generally, I'm I'm optimistic about cheese. I'm optimistic about food because it, it continues to bring us together. It just may continue to bring us together in slightly different ways. Um, I, I think that's great. I think that's uh, like a, a hopeful but also sort of realistic place to leave it. Um, yeah, thank you very much for, for, for joining us today. And um, I think this was you know, certainly wonky, um, but I make no apologies for that. And uh, I, you know, allows us to kind of, I think, scope out. And it, it's very easy in this environment to get really wrapped up in your personal experience, your personal business experience. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, speaking for myself, it was helpful and, and insightful to to kind of think about it more generally. And, and, and it does seem to me like you've put a more opportunity spin on it rather than a uh, sort of calamity spin, which honestly, to help me sleep at night, I'll take. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you you having me on, and and you know I do think it's important to kind of take a, a broader you know industry view where we look at lots of different stakeholders that affect the the cheese community, and um, and you know create as much collaboration and, and teamwork as we can you know, to get to the other side here. Well, uh, I, I, I personally will, will throw my hat in the ring on that front and, uh, and I'll keep you posted and hopefully we'll, we'll have an opportunity to speak again. Um, thank you, Tyler, for coming on. And this has been cutting the curd on heritage radio network. I hope you all have a 
safe and happy evening and week and uh, look forward to beaming out to your airwaves soon. Thanks so much. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.